Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. I'm Barry Eichengreen, Professor of Economics and Political Science at UC Berkeley and your moderator for today. And it is my special pleasure to be able to introduce Nouriel Roubini and his new book, Mega Threats, 10 Dangerous Trends That Imperil Our Future and How to Survive Them. Nouriel is CEO of Rubini Macro Associates. He is also Professor Emeritus of Economics at uh, New York University's Stern School of Business. Nouriel has um, extensive policy experience, having served on the, the White House Council of Economic Advisors and as Senior Advisor to the Undersecretary for International Affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department. He has consulted for numerous private and public institutions, including the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And I would add that Nouriel and I have known one another for the better part of 35 years. Um, a reminder to our audience that we encourage you to submit your questions for Nouriel in the text chat on YouTube, and I will uh, channel them when uh, when the time comes. Nouriel is well known for his gloomy view of the world uh, and for predicting financial crises. It can be said, of course, that if you're always predicting that it's about to be midnight, you'll be right once a day. But Nouriel has done more than that. He nailed the timing of the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, and he shows by the timing of this book, it's coming out precisely when everyone is on edge about the next financial crisis, that that wasn't a one-time uh, achievement. So well done, my friend. You are the master of timing. So Nouriel, uh, to quote the conclusion of your book, the world is facing 10 mega threats. Over the next couple of decades, they will lead to a titanic collision of economic, financial, technological, environmental, geopolitical, and social forces. This isn't exactly an uplifting book, is it? No, it's not an uplifting book, but it's, a, in my view, a realistic book because it deals uh, not only with the traditional economic, monetary, and financial risk and threats. I'm an economist, and I usually believe in comparative advantage. But I looked at the world, and I saw that there were broader trends and risks that we have to be aware of. And I must say, I've known you since I started grad school, and you taught me economic and financial history. And the period between 1918 and 1945, as we know, was a period of two world wars of a great depression, of trade wars, of on one side hyperinflation, on the other side deflation, of uh, geopolitical tension, the rise to power of Nazis, of fascists, Germany and Italy, and then semi-militaristic regimes in Japan and in, uh, in Spain. And then we had World War II and we had the Holocaust with the, even a major global pandemic in 1918. So we tend to project from the recent past and we believe maybe that they next 30 years are going to be like the last uh, three-quarters of a century, there have been a period of relative peace and prosperity. Not that there were not crises, tensions, so on, but we've never had, uh, say, war explicitly between great powers. And economic cycles until recently were relatively mild. We had stable democracies. We didn't worry as much about climate change or pandemic. So right now, in addition to the economic risk, uh, of course, there are geopolitical ones, there are four revisionist powers, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, who challenge the economic, social, political, and geopolitical order created by U.S., Europe, and the West after World War II. Climate change is a major mega threat, of course. And now global pandemics that actually are related, as I explained in the book, to global climate change. We have technological risks. What's going to be the implication of AI, machine learning, robotic automation for labor? Uh, both blue-collar, white-collar jobs, low-value-added, high-value-added, and for labor income. There's a threat of deglobalization and fragmentation and balkanization of the global economy and of protectionism. And, of course, on the economic side, 
we've had a massive buildup of private and public debts at historic higher relative to GDP. I worry about the mother of all debt crisis in due time. I worry not only about explicit debt, but also implicit unfunded liabilities coming from aging and unfunded basic social security and healthcare Medicare system. I worry about the return to the 70s, negative supply shocks of various sorts that may reduce growth, increase the cost of production, and we lose monetary fiscal policy lead to inflation and to recession, to stagflation, what the economy call. And then we have repeated boom, bubble, bust and crash cycle, in part because of uh, monetary policies that were necessary at times, but this monetary and fiscal and credit policy have become uh, excessive. Uh, and they are leading now not only to financial cycles, but also inflationary cycles. So there is a problem of financial stability. And finally, we're seeing a backlash against liberal democracy. Populist parties of the extreme right and extreme left are coming to power in a wide range of both advanced economies and emerging markets. There's a threat to liberal democracy, in part because there are people are left behind and are angry. There is a rise in income and wealth inequality. And therefore, those who are left behind rightly so are bashing the elites, saying that you essentially don't care about us. So there is also social political instability. It's like a 10 by 10 matrix in which each one of these mega threats affects the other and is affected back. So I thought that you have to go beyond economics to try and understand not just the world economy, but the world at large. Final point I'll make as an introduction. The book is about uh, the next 10, 20 years, but literally each and one of the mega threats that I'm talking about is materializing literally today. We're looking step by step at each one of these threats. I could explain you how they're materializing this year in the economy, in the markets, in the policies, and all the geopolitical tensions. So this is not about what disaster could occur 20 years from now, is how much those dangers are rising and becoming real threats in the current present time and the near future, not just the far distant future. That is a lot for us to get our minds around in the next 40 minutes or so. Maybe we can start by focusing on a topic that is near and dear to your heart and my heart, financial stability. So you're deeply worried about financial stability and, and, and looming threats to it. But haven't we learned a lot since the global financial crisis 15 years ago? Didn't we successfully avoid bank failures and a financial crisis during the COVID downturn? Didn't Ben Bernanke, Doug Diamond, and Phil Dibvig just win the Nobel Prize for their work explaining financial fragility and how to prevent it? Well, I think that we do agree that when <clears throat> there is a severe economic downturn and there's a collapse of asset prices, the real economy and the financial economy can feed it on each other in a way that creates even more of an economic collapse and financial collapse. And even agents that are, unquote, liquid, meaning they're solvent, they're not bankrupt, but they have a shortage of liquidity, they could become bankrupt because of that. And of course, the lessons of the Great Depression, the last crisis, that they have to provide liquidity, you have to provide credit easing, you provide fiscal stimulus. The problem, however, that I address is that one, some of these stimulus has become too much and too excessive. In the past, it was leading to asset bubbles. This time around, for a reason we can discuss, we have led also to asset, not just asset inflation, but also goods and service inflation. And I think there has been not enough of a consideration that a bubble doesn't come out of nowhere. And of course, when the bubble goes bust, if you don't clean up the mess, the risk of a recession becoming a depression. But uh, loose monetary and fiscal policies and credit policies in anticipation of a crisis, and I discuss in much detail the history of the last few decades, especially in Chapter 4, create asset bubble, create leverage, and leverage leads to even more of a risk-taking. And then it builds a bubble. And then when it goes crashing, we have to bail out again everybody, and we create the foundations for the next cycle of another bubble. So I think there is a... While I'm in favor of trying to, how to say, help the system and avoid the depression, we have to look at long-run aspects of this cycle, where the Greenspan put, then a Bernanke put, then a Yellen put, now a Powell put. These uh, policies, over time, explain why 
private and public debt as a share of GDP, that in the 70s was about 100% of GDP globally, by 2000 was 200% of GDP. Last year was 350% of GDP, private debt implying those of household, corporates, and financial institutions. In advanced economies, the number is 420% of GDP and rising. In China, 330 Of course, we know as economists that can be good or bad, depending on whether you borrow to invest or you borrow to speculate or to consume. All those caveats are important, but we've essentially created uh, what is a boom-bust cycle and what the economists, the Bank for International Settlement, call a debt trap, that there is so much debt in the system that now the central banks have to fight inflation if they're going to raise rates to fight inflation, not only there is to cause a hard landing, but a severe landing, but there is causing also a financial crash that's going to feed and make that hard landing even worse. So because they're in this debt trap, one of my arguments in the book is that they're going to blink, they're going to wimp out, because there is so much debt in the system that right now they say we fight inflation, but we're not seeing the economic and financial pain. When it occurs, they're going to blink and they're going to wimp out. The first example of it was what happened in the United Kingdom in the last few weeks with the Bank of England having to essentially monetize uh, this reckless fiscal stimulus by the government. So a similar thing is going to happen throughout the world. In a world in which there are geopolitical risks, even a risk of war, as we know, during wars, and we have already war. We have a war against the pandemic. We have a Russia-Ukraine war. We have a buildup of military in U.S., in Europe, because of the threats coming from revisionist states. Historically, wars are associated with budget deficits, budget deficits that are financed with debt, and eventually by printing money. So wars are leading to eventually excessive deficit, debt crisis, and inflation. And unfortunately, I think we're at the beginning of a period of wars, real wars, not just cold wars. You anticipated my next question, not for the first or last time, I was going to ask you about the Bank of England. I think you make a convincing case that uh, about the problem of boom-bust cycles and how the Greenspan put, the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, encourage over-leveraging and speculation. But that does bring us to the question of whether the Bank of England in the last couple of weeks did the right thing by intervening in the gilt market and bailing out the pension funds. Do you think they created more problems than they solved? Well, I can justify their behavior based on short-term financial instability. But every time there is something happening in financial markets, then central banks come to the rescue. During the COVID crisis, bailing out not just banks, non-banks, shadow banks, high-yield debt, high-grade debt, commercial paper, money markets, pretty much everything under the sun, households, corporates, small businesses, large businesses. Uh, Economists think about moral hazard as being a concept of how helping people in bad times may lead them then to believe that they have an insurance, and then they become even more reckless next time around. And at least this time around, I think there is now a consensus that the rise in inflation that we've seen now in advanced economy is not just driven by bad luck. The COVID shock on supply, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, and now the zero tolerance policy of China. It was also bad policy. We may have needed monetary, fiscal, and credit stimulus, of course, given the shock of COVID, but that stimulus was too much, too long, too excessive compared to what it should have been. And that's how we have created not only an asset bubble, but also uh, uh, not only asset inflation, but also actual inflation. And now we have to fight it. And that asset bubble is now being deflated. So so you would say the Bank of England had no good choices, but it picked the least worst choice? Well, the dilemma is as follows. In the 70s, we had negative supply shocks. Yom Kippur war between Israel and Arab states, all embargo, tripling of oil prices, Iranian revolution, falling the production of Iran, second oil shocks, and led to inflation, and given loose monetary and fiscal policy, we ended up with high inflation and recession. But in the 70s, we had low debt ratios in advanced economies. So we had stagflation, recession, inflation, but we did not have a debt crisis. There was a debt crisis in Latin America, 
that borrowed like crazy in the 70s. And when Volcker had to bring interest rates to double digits, of course, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, they all went bankrupt. After the global financial crisis, we had a debt problem, too much housing debt, mortgage debt, bank lending, and so on. But we had a negative demand shock, a credit crunch, and we had the low inflation, if not deflation, so we could have aggressive monetary and fiscal easing. Today, we have the worst of the 70s and the worst of the post-GFC period because we have a whole bunch of negative supply shocks, not only the three I described, but in the book I speak about 11 other ones that are going to be emerging over the medium term, reducing growth, increasing cost of production. We have on one side, but we also have debt ratios at 420% of GDP like we have never seen before. So even with a stagflation shock is a hard for central banks to avoid a hard landing. Why? Growth is lower, inflation is higher. So if you fight inflation, you raise rates, makes the risk of a contraction in growth even more severe. And if instead you care about growth and you don't increase interest rates, then you have a risk of de-anchoring inflation, inflation expectation and having wage price pattern. So it's already hard enough to avoid a hard landing, but now there is a second layer that if you raise interest rates, not only you cause a hard landing, but you can cause a crash of the stock market, of the bond market, of the real estate market, of credit markets, and you lead to financial crashes as well. That makes even the trade-off even more difficult. So in some sense, the central banks are not evil. They're not stupid. They're not arrogant. They already had a terrible trade-off because of stagflationary shocks. And on, on top of it now, there is a buildup of debt that makes that achieving a soft landing of the economy and of the market, in my view, mission impossible. That's a very different world. But the world has been in part created by the behavior of central banks and financial regulators because we have allowed this buildup of debt cycle after cycle. Normally, in bad times, you build up a debt, but then you have to save in good times and reduce that debt. Instead, in advanced economies, emerging market, there's been such a buildup of debt that at this point we're in a debt trap and therefore we're not going to have only a hard landing of the economy, we have at risk of having a financial crash feeding on each other. That's part of the mistakes of long decades of following certain sets of policies. There's a danger that you and I will talk about financial stuff for the entire hour. I, I'm conscious we have to move off of this, but I want to ask one more question related to finance. You're well known for your view that cryptocurrencies are either a bubble or a scam, or maybe both. And you write about that uh, extensively in the book. But I remind you that you're talking to a Silicon Valley audience today, and they would respond, if this is a bubble, this is an extraordinarily long bubble. It has persisted and survived for more than a decade. Isn't the continuing existence, even popularity of, of cryptocurrencies, a bit hard to reconcile uh, with your skeptical view? Well, you pointed out a scam and a bubble. Scam why? There have been 20,000 ICOs, an academic study suggested 80% of them were a scam in the first place to the point that the SEC created a, a parody website to show how you can take a white paper, cut and paste it, put a new name on the coin, and just take the money and run. So 80% were a scam in the first place. Another 15% have lost 100% of their value. And the remaining 5%, 1,000, what has happened? Take the top two, Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin. <clears throat> Since the peak of last year in November, they each have lost 75% of their value. Uh, the other top 10 have lost 80% of their value. And the remaining 900 of these 5% have lost more like 90% of their value. So first of all, huge scam. Secondly, a bubble that has really gone bust big time. Additionally, you and I are <clears throat> not just economic historian, but uh, economists, and we know what money is. And calling these things currencies is a joke. I mean, for something to be a currency, as we all know, it has to be a unit of account. Nothing, nothing is priced in Bitcoin, not even Bitcoin conferences. 
Secondly, it has to be a scalable means of payment. Uh, with Bitcoin, you can do five transactions per second. With the Visa network, you can do 50,000 transactions per second. Three has to be a stable store of value. It's not. The price of Bitcoin can go up or down 20% overnight. I've been to many Bitcoin and blockchain conferences. They don't accept payment. They don't accept payment in Bitcoin. Why? Their entire profit margin, 10, 15%, can be wiped out overnight by 20% fall in the price. They're not stupid. They want dollars. They want euros. They don't want Bitcoin. And finally, in any monetary system, we need a single numerator, right, to compare the relative price of goods and services. But if I need a Pepsi token to buy a Pepsi Cola and I need a Coca token to buy Coca Cola, I don't know anymore what's the relative price of goods and services. I mean, the Flintstones, Stone Age, and the more sophisticated monetary system than crypto, than the, a single numerator, shells. So I could tell the relative price of bread relative to meat. This is in crypto, like going back, tokenization is going back to barter, literally. So calling them currencies, it's a joke. And anybody who has a little bit of knowledge of any economics or monetary theory would know that these are not cryptocurrencies. So is your conclusion that, that crypto will disappear? I, I believe that some of these, uh, unquote, crypto, whatever, they're not even assets for reason I can discuss, may linger uh, over time. But I do not believe that the future of money or the future of finance is in crypto. If there is a future of money and finance, I think that fintech, fintech is based on big data, IoT to get the big data, uh, AI machine learning to make financial decisions, and 5G to put it all together, uh, is going to be a revolution. It's a revolutionizing, say, payment system. Alipay, WeChat Pay, Venmo, PayPal, UPI system in India, M-Pesa in Kenya, just to name a few. You can do billions of transactions a day, and it's done by billions of people. Payment systems are going in that direction. And in the future, of course, we can talk about central bank digital currencies, things of that sort. Uh, credit allocation and loan decision, again, done by machines. Insurance done by machines. Uh, asset management, robo-advisors. All these things have nothing to do with crypto, have nothing to do with blockchain. They're centralized systems using AI, big data, 5G to make financial decisions. And there are thousands of firms that have a real business plan. They have revenue, they have profits, as opposed to the vaporware of 99.9% of crypto. So not every technological innovation stays the course. Most of them actually are useless and disappear. They may have a bubble, they may have a cycle, they disappear. I think that crypto is going to disappear in the dustbin of economic and financial history. Given your uh, skepticism, to put it in an understated way about crypto, I was a little bit surprised to see that you think that China's central bank digital currency will be a game changer and that it will allow the China's currency the renminbi to eventually dethrone the U.S. dollar as the the world's currency used for international transactions. I wonder whether central bank digital currencies are simply more crypto hype. You have to be resident in China to use that country's central bank digital currency. Do you really see it being used in in cross-border transactions, are you convinced it will be a game-changer, that it will help uh, the renminbi dethrone the dollar? First of all, central bank digital currencies, in my view, are not going to be cryptocurrencies. They're not going to be even on a true blockchain, because they're going to be on a private blockchain that is permission, centralized, and the transactions are validated by trusted number of institutions. So they're not going to be blockchain or crypto. They're going to be something different. They're going to be digital. But anyway, 99% of money is already digital. The only thing is not digital are coin and banknotes. And now we're going to find a way of making coin and banknotes digital. But they're not going to be based on blockchain, even if it looks like a blockchain in name only. Secondly, on the substantial part of your question, uh, regardless of whether is a CBDC or a traditional RMB, 
The question is whether the RMB can dethrone the dollar. Now, for the last, uh, uh, since at least World War II, of course, our international monetary system has been based on the dollar, pegged to the gold until 71, 72, since then fiat currencies. Uh, there have been many attempts to create a multipolar currency world. Uh, Bancor was the idea of Keynes at Bretton Woods. Then we tried the SDR, variants of it, including the RMB. Now Mark Carney has an idea for some synthetic type of a uh, currency that is global. Given the geopolitics, my view is that the world is going to be divided, is going to be decoupled, is going to be fragmented in two economic, trading, and financial blocks. One around the United States and its allies, the other one around China. And China is already having sophisticated payment systems domestically, even more advanced than ours, Alipay, WeChat Pay, and you name it. And they're going to try to have the RMB becoming also an international reserve currency. It's not going to be easy, but say, use part of your reserves in RMB. Maybe we can pay for some oil in RMB. Maybe eventually we're going to also price oil in RMB. Of course, it's not going to be easy to do all that. You can do it with your allies and your vassals. But China is going to offer to these countries that are closer to its spheres of influence, not just a monetary system, a financial system, a payment system, a 5G system, a technological system, a surveillance system. So a whole set of technology and trade and financial links and BRI, you name it, so that these countries are going to be under the overall economic, monetary, financial, technological, political, and geopolitical sphere of influence of China. So we had a unipolar monetary world, the world, and we had many problems with this unipolar. We tried to do something multipolar that implies agreement between great nations and great powers. Now we're going to geopolitical decoupling and depression. So I think that the world is going to become bipolar, one in which one part of the world is going to be close to China, one still close to the United States. And in that part of the world close to China, the Chinese not only currency, but financial system, payment, technology, trade, investment is going to be of a Chinese style. In that sense, the role of the dollar as the only dominant uh, reserve currency is going to shrink over time. I don't think it's going to be totally replaced by the RMB, shrinking over time, a bipolar world, a divided world, a decoupled world, a fragmented world, splinter net, and so on and so on, balkanization, even of supply chains secure trade, reshoring of manufacturing, friendshoring. It's gradual, but we're moving in that direction. Let's, let's talk about that end of globalization and um, what it implies. So I think no one would dispute that friendshoring and the move from just-in-time production to just-in-case production are taking place. Everybody sees the rise in tensions between the U.S. and China. But when those tensions rise, all that happens is Apple moves iPhone production from China to India. Which block would India be in in such a world? Isn't there a substantial class of economies that will want to do business with both the U.S. and China? Isn't globalization in that sense too embedded in our 21st century world for it to disappear? Well, even if it was becoming a bipolar world where trade, trading goods in services, in the movement of capital, of investment, of FDI, of labor, technology, data, and information were to be split in two, and that's the minimum, it'll be a very fragmented, balkanized, and divided world. First observation. Very different from the kind of gradual integration we had uh, over the last uh, few decades of globalization, of reduction of various types of restriction to trade in every dimension uh, of trade. Uh, first observation, and gradually we're going in that direction. How much of that then implies that you want to produce domestically as opposed to among your friends, uh, friends shoring, uh, depends. Uh, for example, take semiconductors, 50% uh, of all semiconductors are produced in Taiwan, 80% of the high end. It's a threat because now U.S. is not providing any of that technology to China. China is not yet independent of it. 
But eventually, if there is a conflict on Taiwan and we destroy, say, those factories or Chinese destroy them or there is a blockade, then that shock coming from semiconductors is going to be bigger than any old shock we've seen even in the 70s. I think everyone would agree because there is a chip in everything under the sun. The U.S. is not saying now, let's move those factories to uh, friendly nations. It's putting pressures on Hyundai, sorry, Samsung in Korea and on TSMC, that is the big producer in Taiwan, and say, we want you to build your factories in the United States, in spite of the fact that we don't even have the ecosystem of supply chains and so on to produce these chips, because the design has been in the U.S., but the production has been all mostly in, in Asia. So if we're going to be serious about building those factories uh, in the United States, it's a major cost, increase the cost of production. I take another example, 5G. Uh, we don't want the 5G of Huawei, because we believe rightly is a backdoor to the Chinese government, but the 5G of Cisco, Nokia, or Ericsson costs 30% more than the one of Huawei and is 20% less productive. So to build the same 5G network in the West is going to cost us 50% more. So when you move from offshoring to friendshoring and from free trade to secure trade, you may gain some national security, but you do it at a significant economic cost. And if I could add one final point, today, 5G essentially, uh, I would say, helps us with our, say, cell phones and so on. Tomorrow, 5G is going to be not only the system together with big data, IoT and AI, it's going to make sure that millions of autonomous vehicles can move around without hitting each other. So that's also become national security. But tomorrow, every piece of even base consumer electronic, your cheap toaster from China, your coffee machine, your microwave, even a cup or a mug is going to have a 5G chip just to see how the system, one, uh, moves around global supply chains, and two, because we'll have the Internet of Things, smart devices, billions of them, so you can use them and so on. So once you don't have 5G for your phone, even your toaster can be a listening device for the Chinese. So once you start this way of decoupling on the technology, every piece of goods and services is going to have a 5G. And therefore, we're not going to import anymore even the Chinese toasters. So that's a really radical degree of decoupling. And it's going to have significant economic costs, even if we're going to do more trade with our allies. Yes, we'll do more trade with our allies. There's a complete reversal of that process of globalization that occurred for the last few decades. Since World War II, you know it very well as an economic historian. The gut rounds, the WTOs, and all the rest. It's a reversal, and it's a radical reversal. What, what do you think about the wisdom of uh, what the Biden administration did this month in terms of banning advanced semiconductor design exports to China and encouraging our allies not to export uh, advanced semiconductor equipment to China. Doesn't this just ratchet up pressures, uh, tensions between us and them and encourage them to greatly accelerate their own capacity to do those things? Uh, them if you do and them if you don't. If you don't block them, they're going to use this technology and they're going to use them both from a security military point of view. But more importantly, there's a competition between U.S. and China on who's going to be dominating the industries of the future. And all of those industries literally are some combination of AI, machine learning, IoT, sensors, collecting the big data, and then 5G, and finally 6G, uh, putting it all together to provide all sorts of goods and services. I mean, the fact that just last year or this past year, on one side, Eric Schmidt, a former CEO of uh, Google, and on the other side, Eric Kissinger, who is the greatest geopolitical strategist of our time, the one who did the Open to China, wrote a book together saying, we are at risk of losing the AI, machine learning, robotic automation race with China. In the past, it doesn't matter. Technology developed by somebody maybe give you more benefit to the innovator, but spills over to everybody. But in the case of AI, there is a sense that there is a bit of a zero-sum game. Who's going to control uh, AI, machine learning, robotic automation is going to control not only the economic levels of power, but also the political, 
the geopolitical, the military, and the security. So it's the first time in which a technology innovation looks like a zero-sum game as opposed to a positive-sum game, and there are elements to it. So if we don't want China that is an authoritarian regime with state capitalism to dominate the world, probably we have to do those restrictions. Yes, China has already decided, regardless of what we do, that they have to become independent in semiconductors. That's why they're not going to hit Taiwan until they're independent. Same thing, we would like to avoid that. But the thing that unfortunate, not just competition, but attempt for confrontation between the two sides is leading to a new Cold War. And the only debate is only how fast this Cold War is going to become colder and whether, whether uh, eventually there will be a hot war between U.S. and China. I'm not making any prediction, but as you know, people are discussing if and when on the issue of Taiwan there will be a major confrontation between these two powers. And history, you're familiar with the book of Graham Allison on the Thucydides trap, a rising power facing the existing one. In the last 500 years, out of uh, 16 cases, 12 of them have led to war, exceptions being uh, British Empire and transfer to the American Empire or the Soviet Union, the US. But in one case, they had the same economic, political, social system and language as us and culture. And the other one, the Soviet Union was a declining power that eventually imploded and collapsed from within. While China is not a country that's going to implode anytime soon. It's a rising power, even if it has tons of problems. So I think these, these geopolitical tensions are, are serious. And it's not just China-US. It's Russia versus uh, the West. is Iran versus Israel and the United States is North Korea. You have at least four <coughs> revisionist powers who don't accept our international order and they want to create an alternative one. That's a source of tension, of confrontation, of containment, of competition. And let's hope that it doesn't lead to actual military confrontation. Let's hope so. But there is some risk that that would happen. Let me encourage the audience uh, again to submit questions through the YouTube channel chat function, and we'll turn to them in a few minutes. You just made, Nouriel, uh, uh, a case about the revolutionary effect of 5G and artificial intelligence and that cluster of innovations. It seems to me that sits uneasily with your pessimism about the climate change challenge. Uh, it, it's a big challenge, but think about the scope for future technologies, some which haven't been invented yet for addressing the problem. Look at all the progress we've made in terms of uh, improving the efficiency of solar and wind power. Think about green hydrogen, carbon capture. Um, so is there really a technological problem here, or are you talking about a uh, 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 a political problem, a problem of political will, that our political systems are incapable of addressing this problem? It's a combination of the two. Um, given current technologies, and maybe technology is going to change over the next few years, uh, if you want to reach net zero greenhouse emissions, uh, we need to shut down economic growth. Uh, during the COVID year, 2020, we had the biggest collapse of economic activity globally in 60 years, and net emission fell only by 9%. 9%, okay? And now they're gaining again. Uh, secondly, adaptation. That means let's temperature go to 2 3% above, and then let's limit the cost. That is hugely, hugely expensive. Trillions of dollars of money that we don't have. And the third solution that is geoengineering looks like freak science, throwing dust in the... Uh, you know, the atmosphere to reflect the sunlight. So given current technology, we don't have a solution that, that it doesn't imply negative economic growth forever. The political constraints are both domestic and international. Domestic, there are two of them. Take the U.S. At least half of the country and the GOP doesn't believe in a human-related climate change and is a problem when they're in power. Secondly, there is an intergenerational problem. You know, I'm 64 I'm not going to be around when the destructions occur. Young people care. They don't vote. The elderly care uh, less, and they vote. And therefore, we have this, uh, we discount the future. 
and we don't put as much weight on the, the welfare of future generation and of future humanity, and we are kicking the can down the road. Internationally, you have two sets of problems. One is the free rider, typical tragedy of the commons. If I'm a country and do all the pain and effort to reduce my greenhouse gas emission to zero and nobody else does, I still have a warming em environment and it hurts me. So why should I do it unless we can agree and cooperate on all of us doing? And finally, uh, we, the West, created this problem where 200 years of greenhouse gas emission with the Industrial Revolution, 90% of the stock is due to US, Europe, and advanced economies. The flow of new emission comes a lot from China and India, but China and India are telling us, you want us to cut our emission to zero by the end of this decade, when you create this problem 200 years. We're poor, barely getting to middle income class levels in China, not so in India. We are gonna continue to increase our emission for another 10, 20 years, and then once we are richer, maybe we're gonna do something about it. So are there solutions like uh, saving, going renewable, imposing carbon taxes, and so on and so on. Uh, yes, but the constraints are both technological. So far, the technologies do not allow us to resolve this problem without having negative economic growth. And there are also the other political and geopolitical constraints. And by the way, my former colleague at Yale, Bill Nordas, who got the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on the environment, said that in order to achieve the Paris target of plus two, not even one and a half plus two, the average carbon tax globally should be $200 per ton. Today, the average global is $2, $2 rather than 200. In US, even less than that. And everybody now that oil prices are rising are cutting actually fuel taxes rather than increasing them. Who's gonna, which country you have a politician can have a $200 a ton carbon tax and you need those price incentives to switch to renewables. These are all serious problems. So it's both technological and political. Now in chapter 12, I speak about the technological solution that by the way is not renewable. People who are in the know believe that fusion technology can lead you to energy that is very cheap and is gonna have no greenhouse gas emissions. And that will be a real revolution. People say maybe in the next 15 to 20 years, we can have actually cheap uh, fusion energy. But in the next 15 to 20 years, we may destroy the planet to the point of, uh, of no return. So that's not fast enough. So that's another constraint. So eventually there may be technology that save us. They may arrive too late as of now. Let, let's do one more topic before we turn to the Q&A. Um, I wanna challenge you on artificial intelligence. Uh, um, a first ob ob objection to the case you made earlier is there's no such thing as artificial intelligence or, or what we call AI is not, in fact, revolutionary. It's just machine learning dressed up by a different name. We load large amounts of data into computers and we slice and dice it. It's not autonomous mindfulness and autonomous mindfulness is not in the cards. AI can't do what you and I are doing this afternoon. And the second objection to this dystopian view in the book that AI will destroy our jobs, destroy our politics, uh, transform our battlefields, is that we can shape and challenge and channel it through regulation. Uh, if, if we regulate it better than we do our financial markets, we can uh, be sure, in, ensure that it turns out to be a net positive rather than a negative? Uh, important and valid points. I'm not an expert and I learned a lot about each one of these topics while doing the book. Um, there is a view that I would say is quite uh, dominant among uh, at least scientists that uh, we're going to a process that eventually is going to lead to superintelligence to singularity, to the point that machines can become thinking, they can become autonomous. Uh, initially, we thought that only routine jobs, mostly blue collar, could be automated. Now we realize that most of cognitive jobs can be split into a series of tasks, and each one of these tasks can be automated. And now there are creative things. There are AIs who produce pieces of music, and there's going to be only 
a matter of time when one of these songs, Totally AI, is going to be top 10 in Billboard magazine. Dali now can create pieces of uh, art, of painting that are incredible. If you've ever tried it, it's shocking what can do. It's used now by designer illustrators to make them more productive, but eventually you're not going to need these people. The machine is going to do it on its own. So even stuff that we thought was creative can be done with the machine. And some philosophers are believing that sapiens, homo sapiens, is going to become obsolete. Either we eventually have a merger of the human and the machine, homo deus, the way Yuval Harari puts it in his book, and eventually we are smart enough, we can live forever, our consciousness and memories, everything uploaded in a bionic human being. But it's not even utopian because only a small fraction of humanity is going to be able to upgrade itself. Everything else is going to disappear. That even sapiens, not only the jobs are obsolete. And by the way, we are the only animal species that destroyed previous members of that species. You know, among apes, and we came from apes, the gorilla might be the strongest, but lives happily among bonobos and chimps that are much weaker. But before Homo sapiens, we had Homo erectus, Homo divinisovian, Neanderthal, and so on and so on. We had two million years of hominoids, and every single hominoid species was destroyed by the falling one, and we destroyed when we became dominant Neanderthal and Homo erectus. So when Homo deus is going to come, Homo sapiens is going to disappear because it's going to be he or she super intelligent. That, that's the sense of what can happen in the next 100 years. And that's the view. So we worry about jobs. Uh, we, we're going to be instinct as, as sapiens. Maybe a superior form of humanity is going to come of it. it. People think it's only a matter of time. Can we slow it down with uh, regulation? Yes, we could do so. And there will be a backlash against technology in the same way there was a backlash against globalization because globalization led to winners and losers. We never compensated the losers, and now there is a backlash against it. And technological innovation of the I-form is capital-intensive, skill bias, and labor saving. So if you own the machines or the financial capital owns the machine, you're going to do well. If you are in the top 10% of distribution of skills, probably the I for now as a lawyer, as a surgeon, as an economist, as a banker, makes you more productive and smarter. But if you're a white collar or a blue collar, low value added and middle value added, your jobs and your income increasingly are being threatened by AI. And eventually even the top 10% is going to be replaced because AI is going to also replace anything that is creative. So I don't think that regulation is going to be able to resolve this problem, but certainly there will be a political backlash against a massive uh, structural technological and unemployment, something that already John Maynard Keynes spoke about and wrote about in the 1930s. But he thought right. that we would all work instead of 40 hours, 10 hours, and will become Renaissance men and women and do poetry, art, and culture. The problem is that for some subset of people, 80% or more, there's not going to be any job, while those of us who have high skills actually are working not 40 hours, but 80 hours and so on, because we're so productive. So there's a split even among labor between those who are going to, whose jobs are going to disappear and those that for a while actually are going to become more productive. So the idea that everybody will be able to enjoy leisure and live off it is not realistic. Of course, when the economic pie is bigger, we could tax the winners and transfer money, universal basic income to those who are left behind. But people want the dignity of a life where they are productive, there is work, and dignity of that, having just a check so you can eat and survive is not socially and politically sustainable in the long run. So there are solutions like universal basic income but they create other types of complications. Those who vote for Trump, they don't want a check. They say, I want jobs and I want manufacturing jobs. That's why they vote for populism of the right. That's not going to happen. I, as an economic historian, I would note that we've had these backlashes against technology before. Remember the Luddites. So on that happy note, um, let me turn to some questions uh, prompting the audience by saying much of what we have is about financial crises and, 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 and threats to financial stability. Much of our 
last 40 minutes have been about uh, global geopolitics and threats to political and uh, um, uh, international stability. So questions about that would be welcome as well. Question number one, uh, Professor Rubini, if you were Jay Powell or Janet Yellen, what would you do to help soften the massive financial crisis that you see coming? Honestly, I think that right now is a bit <coughs> too late. Uh, given that the inflation gene is out of the bottle, and given that we have these negative supply shocks, even if we didn't have any financial stability problem, fighting inflation would imply a recession. And given there is so much debt in the system, uh, that fighting inflation is going to also lead to a financial crash. It's going to make the economic downturn even more severe. So we build up so much debt and we created a bubble that now is going bust. And we are, unfortunately, in addition to bad policy, having bad luck, these negative supply shocks, that at this point, uh, we'll be lucky if we're like in the 70s only with stagflation. We'll be lucky if we had only a global financial crisis without inflation, but we have the worst of the 70s and the worst of GFC. So we're going to have both of them. And frankly, I don't think that any administration, whether Republican or Democrat, that any central banker, whether a lawyer like uh, uh, Jay Powell, as opposed to an economist like Ben Bernanke, can resolve this problem. It's, it's too late. It's a bit like during the GFC. It was too late to avoid the mess. Unfortunately, we have really made the mistakes in the past. We created that trap. What's going to happen, as I said, is central banks facing economic and financial crash. They're going to blink. They're going to try to wipe out with inflation the real value of the debt. But you can fool all of the people all of the some of the time and some of the people all of the time. You cannot fool all of the people all the time. And then eventually inflation expectations get the anchored, bond yields and short-term interest rates reprice, and you're not going to be able to resolve even a debt problem to unexpected inflation unless you go to Argentinian style of hyperinflation, something I don't think is likely. So we're going to end up with inflation, with recession, with stagflation, and still with a debt crisis. I don't see any easy way out of it. There's a, a question in the chat that reminds us of the first rule of forecasting. First rule of forecasting is give them a forecast, global financial crisis coming, or give them a date, but never give them both. So uh, we are going to ask you to give us a date. Do you think these... Bad things are going to start unfolding before the end of the year. Are they going to start unfolding in the first half of next year or the second half of next year? Can you put some timing on it for us? Well, some of these mega threats are slow motion, say the geopolitical risks. It might take a decade for U.S. and China being at loggerheads really on Taiwan or maybe sooner. Some people believe that the conflict between Russia and Ukraine could become nuclear and involve NATO within the next 12 months if Putin desperately doubles down and so on. I don't know, but I see these things. So if we're talking about global climate change, slow motion train wreck, when is going to be the next pandemic? We don't know, but there'll be another one, big and nasty. Uh, geopolitical stuff, uh, the unraveling of liberal democracy and deglobalization is not overnight. It's a process and degree of how much and how fast it's going to go. In the short term, I made a prediction, one, that uh, inflation was not uh, temporary, was persistent. Two, that it was driven not only by bad luck, but also negative supply shocks. Three, that in attempt to fight inflation, we're going to have a hard landing. Four, that it's not going to be a short and shallow recession. It's going to be severe and protracted because we have the debt problems. Everybody is tightening monetary policy. In previous recession, we could ease into one monetary and fiscal policy. This time, we have to tighten, and everybody is doing it globally. So I think that we're going to have a severe recession, that that's going to lead to financial and debt problem feeding on the real economy. And the other prediction is that faced with an economic and financial crash, central banks are going to blink. They're not going to stay tough on inflation because the economic and financial crash is not going to be acceptable. And that's going to lead to further losses on equities, 
further losses on bonds and a variety of, of assets. Now, if I look at these predictions, uh, inflation seems to be persistent. It's a combination of bad luck and bad policies. Hard landing looks more likely now than soft landing. Even central banks say, well, we might have a softish landing, we'll have some pain. The BOE is already predicting, Bank of England, five quarters of negative economic growth. I spoke with ECB officials recently. They say, well, we might have already negative growth in Q3, Q4 of this year, but then maybe by the middle of next year, things are going to turn around and so on. And even the Fed is resigned to something of a recession. So hard landing is becoming a baseline, but now everybody says it's going to be short and shallow. And I made some arguments of why it's not going to be short and shallow. It's going to be associated with a financial crisis. At the beginning of the year, I also said, normally, bonds and equities move in opposite directions, their prices. When you lose money on bonds, you will make money on equities. Risk on, risk off, growth and recession. Negatively correlated, but that assumes low inflation. When inflation is high, interest rates are rising, equity markets correct, but a higher bond yield means a lower price of the bonds. So you lose money also on the bonds. This year, S&P has fallen 25%. Bond prices on safe government bonds have fallen by 30% as interest rates have gone from 1% to 4%. So you lost money on your equities, you lost money on your bonds in your 60-40 portfolio or 7-30. There was nowhere to hide. And even your cash was eroded by, by inflation. So that turned out to be actually also correct. So I see these things actually materializing uh, right now. I think that by... The third quarter of this year, Eurozone will be in a recession. UK is already in a recession. US by the end of the year is going to be in a recession. Most advanced economies are going to be in a recession. China is going to slow down even further. For China to go 3% is effectively like a recession. Many emerging markets are in trouble. I was just at the IMF meeting in Washington. The gloom was across the board. The IMF was as gloomy as anybody. So... We're facing a hard landing. The only question is how hard is going to be or how, how mild that is going to be. I'm in the camp of those who are going to believe there's going to be an ugly and protracted recession with financial stresses. We'll see who's going to be proven right. There are two questions in, in, in the chat that pair nicely. Number one, if we forced you to pick the one mega threat that you're most worried about, um, what would that be? I understand your argument that they're connected, but pick one for us. And number two, 10 is a nice round number, but what is mega threat number 11 that ended up on the cutting room floor? Well, it uh, depends on the horizon. If you ask me over the next 12 months, I think we're going to have inflation, recession, stagflation, and debt crisis. So a severe recession and a severe financial crisis. That will be my view of the mega threat that is most imminent. Because climate change, of course, is slow motion, even if the damage from climate change is becoming quite severe everywhere around the world. Uh, the geopolitical issues, uh, there is already a war between Russia and Ukraine. There are some scenarios in which this thing really could involve uh, nuclear weapons and NATO. I don't know what's the probability of that. There's a meaningful risk that... Uh, Israel and or U.S. are going to attack Iran because they are on the verge of getting the bomb, and that's an existential threat. I think that the U.S.-China-Taiwan issue is going to be more slow motion, but it's going to come to a head in the next five to ten years. And climate change is going to destroy us in the next 20 to 30 years, but the damage is already becoming quite, uh, quite severe today. So depends on the horizon. I would say in the short run is what I call is the end of the great moderation, is the beginning of a new regime of what I call the great stagflationary debt instability and crisis. That's the short-term threat to economy, to jobs, and to financial markets. What do you think are the most important things policymakers and the rest of us can, can do to avoid these looming disasters? Well, there are some solutions that are collective. Individually, we can do our share to reduce our carbon footprint, but uh, you need to have billions of people, and for those, you need policies at the national level and the international level. But, of course, even individuals can do their share. 
about reducing their carbon footprint. Firms can do their share, businesses, even if then you have to have national and international policies. Unfortunately, in this space, uh, even of ESG investments, let alone corporate action, I see a lot of uh, greenwashing, green wishing, green fig leaves of various sorts, talk, but not action. So at the individual level, of course, you can reduce your carbon footprint. You can try to re-engineer yourself to study STEM and related stuff so you're not going to be made obsolete by the machines. And your financial investments is a whole part of a chapter showing how you can protect yourself from inflation, the basement of fiat currency, political and geopolitical risk, and environmental. There is a bunch of solutions, short-term treasuries, inflation index bonds, eventually gold and precious metals and some commodities, and real estate that is resilient to climate change. Because a lot of uh, real estate, even the U.S., is going to be essentially destroyed and made stranded by climate change. So that combination of assets can provide you some portfolio, security and nominal real returns, given the onslaught. You have to invest into human capital so that you're not made obsolete by the machine. And we have to contribute individually to reducing our carbon footprint. But many of these problems are national and global, and they require the right national and international cooperation policy. Unfortunately, in a world of uh, geopolitical tensions, cooperating on China becomes harder. We didn't have cooperation on COVID and global pandemics. We are not having the cooperation on global climate change. We're not going to cooperate on financial stability issues. If anything, the Chinese would want to create their own alternative international monetary, financial, currency, trading, investment system, because they don't trust us. They're trying to do so. And we we don't have any cooperation on on important elements of, of security and so on, because we have actually geopolitical competition and rivalry. So a world of great powers is a world of competition, not of cooperation. This is the last question. And and it, it's the hardest one of all. What makes you optimistic about the future? Well, there is a chapter uh, on a dystopian future, chapter 11, and there is a chapter about a more utopian or less dystopian future. And I think that the solution uh, is not political or geopolitical. It's too hard to coordinate and cooperate. It's technological. If, if there'll be a revolution in energy, is not going to be renewable. It's going to be probably fusion. If we can get fusion, we're going to have infinite amounts of clean energy at very cheap price. Then we can desalinate uh, water and we have enough water to produce uh, food and new technology in agriculture are going to allow us to create more food. Then we resolve the climate problem. There'll be much more economic growth if growth is 5 6%. That become more sustainable rather than less sustainable. Growth is the best solution to that problem. Then we can also have universal basic income if most jobs are destroyed by technology and AI and ML. At least we have a social solution to this problem. So if the technologies revolution are going to increase rapidly, the economic pie, even if the inequality is going to rise, as long as we have the right taxation and redistribution policies, we can actually make everybody better off and resolve problems of climate, problems of pandemics, problems of health, problems of debt, implicit, explicit. AI may be available to do financial decisions that don't lead to boom and bust of financial cycles, credit decisions that are made rationally by computer as opposed to by as individuals. We can stabilize economies, we can have better economic policies and so on. So the miracle has to start with technology. The problem is that technology is also leading to a race on who's going to control this technology. So it exacerbates the geopolitical confrontation because who's going to control the technology controls the world. I'm I'm trying to get us to conclude on an optimistic note, and I knew you would throw in that last sentence, Nouriel. In any case, uh, we've reached time. I want to thank Nouriel Rubini for joining us for his book, uh, Mega Threats, which people can pick up at their uh, local bookstores. They can follow my example. I have my copy. Um, 
If you want to watch more programs uh, along these lines and support the Commonwealth Club more, more generally with its virtual and in-person programming, you can learn more at commonwealthclub.org slash events. Um, let me thank our guest, Muriel Rubini, and our uh, audience and uh, say, take care. Um, thank you very much again. And as I said, you taught me economic and financial history, and I realized the importance of knowing it to avoid the mistakes of the past. We have to learn from history. So thank you for doing that. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.